the Million Dollar Mortgage Experience Podcast. All right, welcome to the podcast. Today we're on with Logan Motoshami. He's an expert on the US economy and real estate market. As lead analyst for Housing Wire, he translates complex data into financial truth for housing economics. Welcome to the show, Logan. It is wonderful to be here. Well, I, I've been seeing you on CNBC and on some of my TikToks and Instagrams. I'm like, who is this guy? And so I was like, I gotta gotta get him on my podcast, and and I just wanted to have you on. So tell us a little bit about your story. How'd you uh, you know how'd you get into economics? This was a really strange accident. Um, our family's been in banking since the late 1950s, and uh, um, my father opened up his own mortgage company in 1987, and I started to get in around uh, 1996 and became a, an LO myself in 2003. But in 2010, um, a financial website called Benzinga, they, they saw me talking to some uh, CNBC anchors about economics and politics, and then they said, do you want to be a political writer? I was like, oh, hell no. But <laughs> I will write about um, housing economics because I think there's some things that are going to be missed in this decade. So one thing led to another. Um, I, you know, with Twitter and everything, you know, my work started to get a little bit more popular to the national media. I started to go on Bloomberg a few times. And then around like 2014, 15, I thought, you know what, let's do this the real way. Let's let's talk about housing economics and economics, how an analyst would do it, uh, uh, which means constant charting work. And from that point on, I just started to take it a little bit more serious. One thing led to another. And then, you know, toward the end of 2019, uh, Housing Wire asked if I wanted to write maybe one or two articles. And I think what happened after 2020 is uh, 2020 to 2024 has been so much of my economic focus in the past decade. So here it is. I'm ready. I'm excited to talk about this demographic push in housing. And then COVID happened. Um, and, you know, everything was thrown in a loop. But I think what a lot of people know me for is on April 7th, 2020, uh, I wrote a COVID-19 recovery model for the uh, economic cycle and housing. Hmm. And Housing Wire at first were like, uh, do we really need to publish this? You're actually saying we're going to recover in a few weeks. And uh, by the end of the year, we say, oh, say, oh yeah, follow this data, data line here, this date, this date. Everything worked out. Uh, and then from that point on, um, more of the national media got uh, the attention. And, you know, uh, I created the term forbearance crash bros in the summer of 2020. A bunch of what I say, like professional YouTube grifters are saying home housing was going to crash in 2021, showed work on that, on why that wasn't going to happen. And we should be all afraid of home prices escalating out of control. And now, you know, going on CNBC, touring the country, uh, doing uh, uh, housing economic and uh, presentations. So I'm like living my dream life. I feel like an <laughs> NFL pro player that just got like a hundred million dollar contract. Paying awesome. me to, you know, so uh that's how it all happened just for one guy asking if i wanted to write in 2010 oh that's cool yeah it's a it's a, a really cool thing to be able to well definitely you're resonating with what kind of my thoughts were when when the 2020 happened uh i immediately started looking and calling all of my real estate friends saying you know what's the listings are they going up or are there, are there people listing their homes because i thought maybe you know that would be the only way for the housing the housing to crash is because yeah, there was no inventory. We knew that. And it actually was the opposite. It was, it was people didn't list their homes. They didn't want people coming through their houses during the, during COVID. 
And so I was pretty early on during COVID saying there's not going to be any housing crash. And so when I heard you talking about that, I was like, wow, this guy, you know, he knows his stuff. And, and it just sort of resonated. And, and I thought like, this, this is, uh, this, this has got to be, you know, there's got to be more to this. And one of the things that I end up doing is I, you know, I post a lot on TikTok and Instagram and, and people are always saying, you know, the housing crash is coming and all this stuff. And I'm just like, well, how, you know, how is there going to be a housing crash with no inventory, people paying cash for homes? And, and, and I just was like thinking to myself, you know, I, I was like, the only way there's going to be a housing crash is if there's mass deaths or something terrible that, that happens, right? So like, um, you know, tell me a little bit about kind of your overall, you know, view on the health of the housing market today. You know, so much, so much of my work is, you know, inventory channels are run by credit channels, which at first might sound confusing. But if you look at my inventory charts, I draw these black lines, you know, and I think one thing that a lot of people uh, uh, don't remember in the year 2000 to 2005, inventory was rising and sales were rising. We had this massive credit sales boom. And I'm using the NAR data here. We were at 2 million active listings in 2000, but in 2005, we got to 2.5 million uh, and sales were booming. And then the credit boom bursted and uh, foreclosures were rising in 2005, six, seven, and eight, all before the job loss recession. 2007 was actually the peak of inventory. A lot of people don't uh, know that we had 4 million active listings, but after qualified mortgage happened, We've had this slow downtrend in inventory for 13 years. So in this case, people have 30-year fixed mortgage, you have a fixed debt cost, your wages rise. So homeowners are doing really good. The notion that people would sell to be homeless uh, <laughs> would have to be the premise, right? Because right, you know, right. you have your job, you're employed, you're making your payments, you know, your your cash flow is really good. So I don't I, I always try to explain housing inventory that way and draw these lines and go, listen, this downtrend has been here for a while. So you get really tested when you have the biggest home sale crash ever. Last year, we went from six and a half million to four million. And I kept on saying, hey, listen, inventory can grow, but there's limits to what it could do. And back in November 9th of last year, I talked about, okay, the housing market is is about to structurally change. Where rates fall, demand will stabilize. And even today, total active listings, NER data is 1.1 million. I mean, we are, we, are, we are far away from the 50-year average, let alone the peak of 2007. And the credit profiles of homeowners uh, look good, let alone 42% of all homes don't have a mortgage. Right. Yeah, that's, so that's it's just It's just factor. one of these dynamics. You have to follow the credit data to understand why won't people sell their homes to be homeless or why won't they sell their homes to uh, um, uh, go rent? And I always say that majority of all sellers are buyers, 75 to 82% of them. So supply is a function of demand. New listings data, something we track at HousingWire was always trending at the lowest levels in 2021 and 2022. But after July of 2022, when rates got past 6%, we took another leg lower. And for 15 months now, new listings data has been trending at the lowest level ever recorded in history. So when the Airbnb bust or the housing, all these things, the new listings data never has confirmed it uh, since the start of 2020. And I think our job at HousingWire is to show people the data so they can explain it better and take all the noise out of there and it'll be easier to understand. And that's part of my job. You know, I, I go from city to city and I do these 45 minute presentations and the charts are designed to be entertaining, but also useful in the sense to where 
people could just explain them to their clients or to their fellow agents so everyone could understand it better because in a world now where so, data is so accessible, it's really how you, uh, what you believe the data is trying to tell you. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I love your little graphs because it just it's just so obvious. You know, when you see it that way, you know, people a lot of people go off of fear and feelings, and you know, this this they think that it's going to repeat. You know, oh eight's oh eight's going to repeat, but it's so fundamentally different with like you said, QM and even non QM loans are so you know they still have ATR requirements. Exactly. That's one of the things I had to explain to people in uh, 2020, that the non-QM loan products are not the exotic loan debt structures that we saw, the 8020s, IOs, the option arm loans, you know, a lot lot of the bank statement loans were actually really qualified people with uh, a lot of equity. So I think the debt structures back then, it it all, all those loans went away. So people don't understand that, you know, everything was legit. A job loss recession can create you know, people selling, but even at that case, they're not uh, foreclosures. Foreclosures were rising for four years before the job loss recession happened. Uh, here, what we call is forced equity sellers, and equity levels are the highest level. So it's 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 it. I could not put two different housing cycles next to each other yeah, in the history yeah. of economics on planet Earth than these two. And then hopefully by now, now that we're almost in Halloween. Uh, in 2023, people could understand how different and unique the housing cycle is. Yeah. Now you say you, you've been traveling from city to city. You had to have seen, you know, Nashville and maybe Miami and all this, all the cranes and all the buildings. I have a rental, couple rental properties in Nashville. And one thing that just happened, which was interesting, and this could be just anecdotal, but the, the condo that I had listed for, it was like 3000 a month. Now uh, the a condo high rise just came on the market and there's, you know, a, flood of inventory of two and three bedroom condos. So my, the price of my condo now has dropped almost in half as far as monthly rental, because they need, you know, they're trying to get these, get the supply rented. And so I see probably different pockets to where, you know, rental properties might be kind of, you know, affected like maybe a Miami or a Nashville or, you know, different things like that. What are your thoughts on that? This is, this is a a topic near and dear to my heart. I remember, uh, uh, kind of toward the end of 2020, I was talking to the Washington Post and it said the history of global pandemics, they're actually very inflationary for rent. You know, just pandemics, the supplies of everything just doesn't work normal. Just like, you know, in, in world wars, you're, you're, you're almost in a, kind of a capital control state. But the disinflation factors actually do come true. The one thing that is different here is that we had a, an apartment boom. Uh, uh, in America, uh, multi-units or apartment construction uh, under construction is still one million right now. Hmm. I don't think they're all going to get uh, 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 finished, but w- we had an apartment boom, so we we're going to have major supply. So I think last September uh, in 2022, I went on C- uh, CNBC on the CPI day, and I said, you know, sh- uh, rent rent inflation lags on the CPI data, but it's going to be so apparent to everyone in 2023 because the growth rate of inflation is going to a fall by itself because of shelter disinflation, but then the supply is going to come as well. So you're going to get hit on both sides. So the CPI data still lags that reality, but real-time rents, you get to see, I mean, the history of 
rental deflation in America post-World War II is very rare. We don't, because most people are working, but the growth rate in the, in places, Nashville, Miami, there, there are places where it's actually negative now, just because the supply is finally hitting, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, the marketplace and the supply and demand equilibrium for there is much different than the uh, single family side. In fact, in fact, single family rentals are, are holding up better than uh, uh, five unit constructions in that sense. So uh, the, we had an apartment boom like we haven't seen since the early 70s. Right. And right. then what happened in 1974, the recession there, the uh, apartment construction boom collapsed. And this is we're in that process to where construction loans, you know, running six, seven percent made sense. But now at 13, 14 percent, it doesn't. So you're getting people starting to pull the plug on on things under construction and the supply is going to hit. So that in a sense is good for uh disinflationary factors which will be good for housing uh cuz when that occurs the fed could lay off, rates could go down, uh but it it just it's painfully slow. Yeah. Do you think we'll see ever a, the condo conversion craze again? City to city and how that's going to uh, work out, you know, there's so many rules and regulations uh, uh and uh you know w- one of the questions I get across the country is why don't uh, uh, places uh, that have empty uh, commercial buildings, uh, why don't they just make them condos? And the coding just for to convert them into uh, 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 condos just aren't there. So you, we, don't even, we don't even have a good story of how many can be converted. But uh, there are places where you'll see condo conversions uh, 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 a lot more faster than others. But in terms of the commercial buildings, the coding, the building structures, they, they can't even fit them to be uh, uh, inhabited by uh, uh, living people. So that's, I, the supply is going to come for the next two years, but eventually I think the production of apartments are going to slow down so fast that two years down the line, you know, we might even see a, a, a supply a constraint again. And that's how cycles work. You know, you get yeah. these bo- yeah. building booms and then they bust. And then nobody builds for a few years. And then all of a sudden we're back here again where we need more supply. So also I've noticed um, in different, you know, Airbnb pockets, uh, you're going to have people who aren't getting as many listing, you know, uh, many renters that are coming in for, you know, whatever ski weeks or different winter months or, you know, different places aren't, you know, filling up as much as they were because just the recession that we're kind of in and, um, what are your thoughts on, you know, people who have those debt service coverage loans on the, on the single family side and condos, you know, there's a little bit of uh, nervousness talk in the investor, in the investor community, especially in the non-QM space about, we did a lot of these debt service loans, DSCRs, where we were going off, you know, the Airbnb income to kind of qualify. And, you know, I know they have historic equity in these homes, so I don't have any, you know, worry that these homes are going to foreclose or, necessarily default but you know do you see that that's going to maybe bring some uptick in in homes that are going to be listed for sale in these in these you're going to see people that probably didn't do their homework and uh uh get hit on the not bringing in the uh rents needed now the Air- Airbnb story is there's over 144 million total housing units in America Airbnb is less than 1% of it so it kind of went from like 800,000 to the boom is actually like uh, almost at 1.2 million. Interesting fact. 1%. Wow. I did not yeah, know that. That's that yeah. Just that um, uh, hit you. So naturally, whenever you get more supply, you know, the price of the product or the rent should go down. So there, there are areas where I think there's a lot of 
inexperienced people that just went into it thinking everyone's doing it so I can make money. If you didn't do your homework or you didn't kind of uh, uh, have experience uh, renting properties out, you're probably in a bind where you see the growth of Airbnb come in. Uh, I think that, that that's a risk for for that. But you know, one of the things I've always said, a lot, lot of people said this year was going to be the Airbnb bust years. Actually, they they said the same thing in 2021 because nobody was traveling <laughs> back then. Yeah. But yeah. new listings data uh, in America has been trending at the lowest levels ever recorded in history for 15 months. So if you're ever going to see like a a bust where rental owners are going to start listing their homes just because they can't cover, we'll be able to catch it first because we get the new listings data updated every Friday. Uh, and I always write an article about it on Saturday just to let everybody know. And so far, nothing really. Uh, mm-hmm. We've been trending at the lowest levels ever. Just last week, we're down week to week, down year over year. We are finding a bottom, a historical bottom in 2023. So uh, there are pockets where people just didn't do enough homework and uh, it's costing them more to to keep it. Usually those people are going to be the first ones to sell because if they do have the equity in there, uh, it, it makes better financial sense to unload the property. But we have not seen anything under any circumstances, actually, uh, <laughs> in the last three years to see any stressed inventory coming to the market. It's so interesting. It's becoming harder, I think, for people to buy homes. But the people that own assets and own homes, it's it's a it's, so there's a separation. I think there's a you can kind of see it with the rich and the poor. And it, it's an interesting, you know, people who don't own and people who own people have, you know, have have a lot of assets, a lot of homes or you know, real estate have created so much wealth over the last five, six years. And so, you know, it's an interesting time. Yeah, the 30 year fix. I every 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 city I go to, I just go. It's not fair in America that we have a 30-year fixed products. Other parts of the world hate us because they have so much short-term debt. Yeah. There yeah. are people in Canada that are waking up to the morning, their mortgage payment is doubled. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There are a lot of these countries are tied to short-term arm products. And we have a 30-year fix. So I always say fixed debt costs, rising wages. What happens during an inflationary period? It's been so long since we dealt with breakaway inflation, but your wages rise to compensate for the growth rate inflation, but your debt payments stay the same. And then people have been living in their homes longer and longer, right? From 1985 to 2007, the average housing tenure is five to seven years. From 2008 to 2023, it's been 11 to 13 years. In parts of the U.S., it's 15 to 18 years. Wow, I mean, wow. I've lived in my home for 20 years. So think about that fixed payment. Your wages rise. Three refinancing waves, 2012, 2016, 2020, 2021. So your total housing costs on top of the nested equity, you know, yeah. uh, that's just that's this icing on the cake. But your total housing costs for your wages are so low. So as a homeowner, you are shielded not only against inflation to a degree, but you're also shielded against the Federal Reserve. Right, so all right. these aggressive rate hikes and everything, the effective mortgage rate uh, out there is so low. And, you know, uh, there's just not enough home sales to offset that all these people have rates and, and total costs so much lower that it's, you know, in, in that case, being a homeowner was the biggest advantage on planet Earth, but it was only in America Right, that right. Uh, we have Freddie and Fannie VA, you know, we have, we have our, our plumbing system is much different than other countries because other countries are not uh, as lucky as us. So that, that advantage is not only just the nested equity, but the total cost of housing is so low. So 
Uh, it's one of the factors why uh, new listings data has been trending at the lowest levels for three years. People are just doing good and nobody- They don't want to, they don't want to get rid of that 30-year fixed. I mean, they're just like, you know, I have an $1,800 payment. It's $5,000 if I move. My cash flow is so great. And in a time like this where you're not uh, sure where the economy is going, your house is is the best thing on planet Earth because not forget about the nested equity. That that total cost is so much lower than actually a lot of people what they would rent for. Right, uh, right. Uh, and that's the thing is just that people's current wages, you know, if you've just bought a house when if you're 26 or 27, it's different. But so many people have been living in their homes longer that their wages are so much higher than their original time they bought. And now with so many people refinanced that it, 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 the homeowners in America are like the last people on planet earth anybody should worry about. Yeah, I agree. hundred percent. So let's talk about interest rates. I mean, as we know, we've had just insane hikes over the last two years. It's, it's been very tough as a CEO of a mortgage company to navigate that. Um, but you know, it, it's kind of like balancing out. We kind of feel, I mean, I know there's probably, there could be one more rate hike. What are your thoughts uh, on, you know, you know, what is that doing to the home prices? Is it affecting them at all? Have you seen any kind of impact on that? Or, you know, what are your thoughts so on it? When we, you know, obviously home prices escalate out of control. And that to me is more of a function of inventory breaking to all time lows. We had three and a quarter to 5% mortgage rates in the previous decade. Uh, um, and we didn't have out of control home prices because inventory was much higher back then. Uh, here, as soon as rates got above, four, five percent, the growth rate of home prices uh, decelerated. Last year, for the first time in a while, we had month-to-month declines in home prices. In, and I would say that last year was such a such an abnormal year that we should almost X out 2022. We literally had the biggest crash in home sales ever. We had mortgage rates have 2% swings twice within a year. We had, you know, from three to five, and they got to six and six back to five, from five to seven. That's not normal, right? So everybody that was in the marketplace, you know, that had to sell were like, okay, you know, we have we have to cut some uh, prices. But after kind of November, everything kind of stabilized. Uh, home sales stopped crashing. And what's occurred is that during that period of time, home prices started to go up again, just because we're back to the low inventory, stable demand. So higher rates can create more days on the market and we have a you know the, the price cut percentages at housing wire we show that every single week one third of all homes have price cuts in america uh, all year long but the price cut percentages if things are getting weaker we see that price cut percentage each week rise and even today with higher home prices and higher mortgage rates the price cut percentage is actually still four percent below what we had last year so last year was kind of like a once in a lifetime event uh, and we're not repeating it. And, and that's how I explain why prices are still firm. We're not growing home prices in any big fashion, but, and there's pockets of the US that are actually uh, declining month to month. But in general, uh, as long as you have stable demand and inventory low, it's hard to have like big national home price crashes because there's not enough velocity uh, 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 of home selling and to have owners cut their prices so fast to get out. Uh, so definitely rates matter, but uh, the growth rate of pricing tends to cool. And uh, the only time we saw real negative uh, data lines was the second half of 2022. And we got to remember, 
after having rates go to three to six percent, we went back to five, five to seven and a half. That second half of seasonal price, people were just cutting prices just to get their homes sold. And that kind of that marketplace uh, ended after November 9th. So it's it's a weird marketplace, but we keep it simple. Total total active listings are still near all-time lows. New listings data is trending at all-time lows. There is no distressed sales of anything out there uh, to, to matter. Uh, um, and that's why pricing has stayed firm. And kind of, you know, we saw that even in the late 70s and 80s uh, mm-hmm. uh, with even higher mortgage rates then. Uh, the only time we've ever had really big nominal home price crashes was, you know, 2008. And all the variables that were there, none of them are here today. Uh, a much different marketplace. Yeah, I mean, I remember we, there was... Uh zero down on investment properties. And there was even 125% mortgages. And it's like, you know, we have tons of equity in, 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 in homes, I think historically, right? There's trillions in, in equity in home in, in the United States homes. So um, it's, it's like you said, it's, it's just a different market. 08 to 2023, 2022, it's, it's a totally different market. Um, I, I think that's, that's, the, that, that's a good point in saying that back then, a lot of investors had like seven or eight properties, and they also had option arm loans. Yeah, or just even 228s or 327s, right? Where like the option arm at least had equity in it, right? Like the, if you had an option arm, you had 20%, 25% down. Some of these 228s and 327s, they had literally zero equity in the home and they had this adjustment. Yeah, it got really crazy from 2002 to 2005. And we see it like in the mortgage uh, availability credit index, it skyrocketed to 900 from 100 to 900 in 2005. And then it collapsed and we've gone nowhere for like 13 years. But the the exotic loan debt products that were facilitating demand uh, were designed like ticking tie bombs. So when you have not a lot of equity being created, and those things go off, you you have this explosion of inventory. That's why my inventory charts are really designed to go back to 1982 to give people like perspective on how crazy 2000 to 2007 was and how boring and slow the inventory channels have been after 2010. And, you know, you got tested with COVID, you had forbearance, you had 7% mortgage rates, you had the biggest home sale crash ever. And homeowners are staying chill because they got a boring vanilla 30-year fixed mortgage <laughs> and they're employed. And when you're employed yeah. and you're making your payments, and your costs are low, you don't act like stock traders. I would say stock traders are the ones who panic all the time because they're always on margin, right? So they think homeowners are on margin. No, they're not. You're not getting a margin call in your house unless you're a Peloton CEO and have to owe Goldman Sachs money. So outside of that, everybody is just, as long as they're employed, everything's good. That's good. Good stuff. Um, talk about the 10-year treasury and the in- inverted yield curve. It's 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 kind of, you know, I, I have my own theories on what's happening, but I just would love to hear your, you know, it just seems like it just keeps ratcheting up. And is it that, you know, people are, they don't want to buy these treasuries because they're just nervous. And I know the Fed's not buying. So talk, talk to us about that. So I have a six recession red flag model. Um, you know, I even presented that to the Federal Reserve in 2019, the, the conference board uh, 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 that created the IMF, the World Bank. Um, uh, I actually spoke to their trustees last year when I said, here's my, here's my six recession red flags and the inverted yield curve, uh, uh, is one of them. But traditionally speaking, you know, toward the end of a, a cycle, bond yields actually do increase. And then when they do increase, what happens is real yields, like where the growth rate of inflation's at, 
and the 10 year yield is at, you know, it actually gets very restrictive because bond 10 year yields do increase kind of toward the end because the economic cycle is the data is still good enough. Here we have a lot of things happening at once. Number one, the Fed is quantitative tightening, right? They're rolling stuff off of their balance sheet. We have a lot of deficit spending right here uh, coming in. So we have a lot of supply. So there's demand there, but then global bond yields are so much higher now. Like Japan is, they're, they're not in negative uh, territory anymore. So global bond yields work with the supply and demand imbalances or, or, or how bond traders work from. So we have a lot of things that are keeping pushing, pushing rates higher, but it somewhat looks normal. As long as the economy is still moving, see bond yields started to whiff out they thought a recession uh, uh late last year going into uh, uh 2023 the banking crisis drove the 10-year yield all the way down to kind of uh 3.24 percent i've kind of said at the start of the year we really shouldn't break under kind of 3.37 percent unless we're about to have a recession and the labor market's burning. So I believed in it so much. I called it my Gandalf line. You <laughs> shall not pass. And it got tested eight times. And I was wow. like, my God, this is really like taking it to the next level. So what happened is after the banking crisis was solved short term, jobless claims started to fall, bond yields rise. This looks like every kind of economic cycle because right now we're really restrictive. Like the Fed was telling us that the economy's, the monetary policy is restrictive now because the growth rate of inflation is falling. Back when we were running at 8 9% year over year, we were actually not very restrictive because the 10-year yield wasn't high. So we are at the spot that in every kind of economic cycle, the recession isn't that far off. This is why you've seen some of the Fed presidents in the last two weeks try to come online and talk the bond market down uh, uh, because the bond yields took off. Uh, right when they were in kind of restrictive territory. So the Fed doesn't want to cut rates. Um, but if jobless claims start to tick up, like my level is like 323,000. Once that happens, the labor market is broken. The 10-year yield is going to head lower by itself. And then the question is, does the Fed come in and, and follow every single cycle? So we've had, you know, kind of a big push the last uh, uh, a few months, but uh, one of the data lines that has gotten better is the one data line that I focused on this year. Jobless claims was trending up higher and it's kind of reversed course. Uh, job openings are still above 9 million. So the labor market is just holding holding up uh, better than a lot of people thought. But we do usually see yields rise uh, toward the end of an expansion. So uh, it, the inverted yield curve giving it up at this point, uh, uh, actually runs with uh, normal economic cycles. It's just that usually the Fed is cutting rates right about now. Uh, usually after the last Fed rate hike, bonds rally because they, they're sniffing out a recession. Here, we have a lot of deficit spending that's keeping the economy moving. So it's 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 it's, it's different in that light because there's a lot of people that are going, why, aren't the bond, why isn't the bond market right, are, are rallying and yields going down with the last Fed rate hike? A lot of different variables at play in this cycle that's a little bit different than the previous ones. Uh, but traditionally, we should, we should see the 10-year yield rallying. It's one of the things I'm talking about for 2024. It's a better backdrop for bond markets to rally and mortgage rates to go down next year than it was this year. Uh, uh, and uh, we'll see how you know we track all economic data every single day, every single week. But next year has a better backdrop for that, for the 10-year yield to fall. And of course, getting to 5% uh, uh, made it really restrictive on Fed policy. Mm -hmm.
you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about de-dollarization in, in, you know, the BRICS countries and how that could affect the yield and treasury. Is there anything you have on that? Because I know the dollar's strong, right? I mean, we have a real strong dollar. It's been getting stronger uh, against a lot of currencies. But, but, you know, you keep hearing this BRICS and, you know, that people, China dumping dollars. And, you know, so I'm just curious what your thoughts are. The problem we have in America is the dollar's too strong. Yeah, it's always yeah. been, I mean, we have such an unfair advantage over the world. So we've got the biggest economy. We have really good demographics compared to other people. Like Japan's dying. 40% of their population will be dead by the end of the century. Uh, Europe's uh, demographics are, are, are falling apart in terms of their population growth for younger people. Uh, Japan hit their peak limit in 2015. So we have good demographics. We have the biggest economy. We're the wealthiest country in the world. Maybe Cleopatra back in her days adjusting to inflation was wealthier than America. But we have that. We have friendly, uh, friendly neighbors. We have two oceans that separate us. We have the biggest military. It is not fair, the advantage the U.S. has. But the problem with that is that our dollar gets really strong when there's drama around the world. And the world can't handle a dollar being too strong. It causes chaos. Last year, uh, the summer of last year, the dollar is getting stronger. And God, London was going to lose its pension funds. They almost didn't even open the stock market there because they were going to wipe out all their pension funds. Japan always has to do intervention when our dollar gets stronger. So I'm, the, you know, the BRICS, Russia, Brazil, China, India, India. It, out of all those countries, India has the most potential, but uh, I, nothing's going to happen. I mean, these are like four drunken people trying to hold everything <laughs> up at the bar. I mean, it's funny because nobody talks about the euro getting really weaker. They they try to make these stories that the dollar is going to get uh, weaker. It's just it's just our our issue has always been the dollar gets too strong and it creates havoc around the world. So um, they need to do something to alleviate that. And I think for in Russia's case, uh, especially when they get sanctions, they have to find a way. Uh, uh, to make their uh, uh, economy work by exporting stuff. Brazil, of course, exports a lot of food uh, around the world. And uh, uh, China is dealing with a, a lot of issues that, you know, we saw this in Japan in the 1990s when their population growth for prime age labor force peaked, and then it started to go lower. So, so they have so many homes that are nobody's living in them. Uh, out there, and they're they're so used to real estate helping their their economy out. It's just not the case anymore. So, their kind of state capitalism is has growing pain. So, I the if anything, I wish the dollar wasn't as strong. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's just the U.S. has such an unfair advantage over the world, and 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 in this case, uh, the dollar getting too strong is just too. Uh, the world can't handle it. And uh, I'm I'm hoping that the dollar. To, I my running joke was that the dollar got to 115. I'm going to be the dollar for Halloween, you know, <laughs> because that's just going to. It's a global wrecking ball, you know, like it was last year. So uh, we can use the dollar not being as strong, but those countries, uh, you know, there's there's some nefarious reasons they don't want they need to create their uh, a new currency. But they're to me, it's it gets interesting with them if they try to do a commodities war. Because it's so much of food and energy, and you know they can control some of that stuff. But uh, I, I'm I'm like the last person who's going to say I'm the last thing I'm worried about is the dollar collapsing in any any fashion or anything in that matter. And the dollar actually going lower would actually be good for 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 rates. But the dollar getting stronger and then forcing other countries to sell treasuries to to protect their currencies that's that tends to be a problem for mortgage rates in the short term. 
Good, good points there. Um, what are your thoughts on, I know things are heating up in the Middle East and we're starting to see a lot more headlines that are, you know, clickbait or whatever you want to say it. Some of it's obviously real. Um, and there's some scary stuff out there. Uh, how do you think that would affect the interest rates if we ended up in a, some kind of war with Iran or with, you know, within the Middle East? I know we're sending troops. I know there's a lot of stuff going on that, you know, people can see in the news, but what are your thoughts on that? Usually people would run to our dollar and treasuries whenever there's a, a kind of a world chaos. And so far, what I've seen is the dollar really hasn't rallied and the bond market has not really acted uh, uh, with all the drama out there. So I, to, the market right now is not smelling any escalation. Um, escalation is not good for anyone. Right, We've had right. a lot of skirmishes uh, uh, in the Middle East over the last 10 or 15 years. They haven't escalated yet to other forces coming in and creating that because it's, it's not to anyone's interest over there. Uh, but as of right now, I just haven't seen the rush to the dollar or the rush to treasuries that you would see in any kind of conflict that people are not are uh, are, are mindful for. So uh, as of right now, it the market is saying it's somewhat contained. Uh, but who knows? We're we're dealing in with a time yeah. that you just don't know what other parties could come in and try something. Uh, but would that be like an indicator, just to kind of see? Would it be an indicator to see some of that stuff rising? Just just kind of tell you the market's kind of nervous about it, or if if the market was nervous, people would run to our dollars and our treasuries because that's the safest bet in the world. So bond yields would go down, the dollar would go up, um, mortgage rates would go down in that sense, uh, and quite haven't seen that action yet. Uh, and I'm, I I literally have the dollar on and the ten year yield on on my brain all the time. So uh, it's just there, there hasn't been that rush to safety yet. And I think a lot of that is, you know, they're trying to free some hostages and holding stuff back. So we haven't we haven't seen the full impact of what's going to happen in the future. So that that's kind of what I look for, because usually the dollar would rally, get stronger and people would buy treasuries in the U.S. Uh, not not the case yet, but it's something we always keep an eye on every single day because anything that happens on the news wire, we get to see that. Uh, but that would be the 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 market trade on something like that. Interesting. We'll be watching that then because there's a lot of, you know, saber rattling or whatever, just news like clickbait going on. And, you know, I think I listened to a uh, Elon Musk and David Sachs podcast yesterday where they were all talking about, are we headed to World War Three? And it was just I was like, wow, you know, you know what I do? I I I don't watch TV outside yeah. of football or <laughs> sports. I hardly follow anyone on Twitter. <laughs> uh, and, and I don't even, I, I just focus on my work because the, the thing now is with social media and the advent, um, the, the system is designed to work with your head with really crazy headlines because that's going to entice people to, to, to listen. And I think part of the thing about, you know, being an analyst, you know, if, if you let your ideological takes go into what, what you think the more, uh, economic takes is you you could be doing a disservice to your readers in a sense because you, you want to believe what your own uh, fundamental beliefs are rather than what the economic data is and it's just there's so much noise there yeah that yeah. i just i've the last few years i just i don't I, I don't even watch my own interviews on cnbc <laughs> you know and i just like you know i gotta see it on youtube but uh twitter i mean uh, i i follow like maybe 200 people 
Uh, uh, and it's just in this day and age, that's there's so much attention drawn to just a headline that really might not even have anything to do with it. And that's that's how the system has worked. It's to get you to engage, or if it bleeds, it leads. Right, right, you know, right. Kind of stuff. Uh, looking for attention, uh, so looking for eyeballs. However, they yeah, get your I mean, attention. My my running joke is like the most popular thing I ever wrote in 2017 on on April Fools. I said the U.S. is going into a recession. <laughs> and I wrote all these things of all the reasons everyone said the U.S. is going into a recession. And then then I wrote all the things that is not true. And then at the bottom of it, I said, if you share this article without reading it, because it was an April Fool's joke, then you're <laughs> the person I'm talking to. And it's oh, I, I still trick people with that just because <laughs> of the headline. Yeah, and there's like yeah. one guy that's been tricked three different times, you know, <laughs> by the same article. So it's just uh, yellow journalism. That's just that's just the world we live in. And just for myself, I always say politics is the word itself. Politics, many mm. blood sucking parasites. <laughs> so you got to like keep things with just numbers and uh uh stay away from the noise and this is why like you know i, I i'll follow the data and i'll, I'll if anything news wise comes that's big but man with the cast of characters we have in this world now boy things could get <laughs> really wacky on the news front and uh oh, it's so i try to stay away I, like literally i try to avoid myself uh, uh, from that, because I think you, you got to focus on the numbers and stuff and, and then not get caught into the, the madness of the world. Uh, it is because information is like this. I mean, look at what happened with the, uh, bank runs. Silicon oh, yeah. Valley oh, yeah. bank. Jeez. That was like three Slack messages and boom, boom goodbye. Boom. Yeah, you know, yeah. there goes that money. Uh, so it, the world just, the information moves so fast these days. And a lot of misinformation, disinformation. Yeah. It's, it's, disinformation. That's that. That's the thing. So what, one of the things I've done, um, and I started doing this uh, 18 months ago, there are so many trolling bubble crash people out there that I challenge them to live debates. I awesome. literally like take the build a butcher gift and just go, let's go one-on-one. -on -one. And I try to get people on, 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 on a debate. Now, so far, Everyone's kind of wised up to my ex because as soon as I get them on a live debate, I'm going to destroy them. But I've gotten <laughs> a few stock traders to, to fall in. And then once people can hear these people talk, you could realize, wow, they don't really know what they're talking about. Yeah, They don't yeah. forecast. They have no models. They just, you know, everything is doom and gloom. This way, I've done this for so long that people have actually stopped to try to engage me because all I do is, okay, let's have a live debate. Let's have a live <laughs> debate. Let's have a live debate. Yeah, so information, yeah. correct information is the best way to fight disinformation. But disinformation is actually gets all the volume. So people like myself, we're like pilgrims in an unholy land. Like, you know, we're like the old guy in, in a dungeon, the <laughs> long beard and a candle, and we're reading scrolls and they bring us out <laughs> once in a while. So, but in this way to kind of attack disinformation is you get people into a conversation. And then when they, when they have to talk, this is my debating tactic. I just let them talk. And then I'll answer, ask this question, this question. And then there, uh, and then you just, you can see they're just not, they're just not data people. But outside of that, yeah, you could get so much bad information out there. And that's the business model. The worse it is, the better it is for a lot of people. So true. Good advice. Good advice. Turn off the news. Just get back to real life and 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 data, like you said. Back to and, and back to some numbers. Uh, you know, I used to look back in during the crash in 08, I looked at the US debt clock a lot. Because, you know, I was in the foreclosure business. I did a whole bunch of stuff with that. And I would see, you know, the ticker, the U.S. debt clock. Now it says we're at 33 trillion and rising by the day. And, 
you know, with these interest rates and, and, and you know, the debt's going to have to be paid at these higher rates at some point. You know, how, how, how are we going to do that? How is that going to affect our economy? What are your thoughts on that with the debt? You know, in, in, in 2019, I wrote an article, 71 trillion in debt by 2060. And uh, I said, probably beat, beat us. We're going to beat the number. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was a conservative number. That was before COVID. And I said that there is literally no way we're paying the debt. This debt is going to be monetized and it's going to just keep on growing. Just the, the laws of, of demographics. We have so many older people coming into the system. Right. That mandatory payouts are the majority of the debt expansion. And no one's, no one's going to cut social security. No, no one's going to cut Medicare. No one's going to cut defensive spending. You know, no one's going to raise taxes. You know, right. it's, it's all this, 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 this gambit. So what, what's occurred right now is that the, the interest of um, uh, the debt has gone up because rates have gone up. But also, I think one, one thing that people forget is that the government is a net payer of that interest out to people. So investors actually have a lot of interest income now. There are companies out there that are actually making probably the most money uh, on their uh, cash in, yeah, in their accounts because yeah. they're, they're not they're not uh, they're not profitable yet. So uh, one person's debt is another man's interest income. So uh, there there are some benefits to that. To me, like Japan's debt to GDP is like two hundred seventy five or something. Uh, there's no way we're stopping this debt train unless you have like a Logan's Run at age like forty back. You know when people are getting killed when they're 21 or something. There's right. just, we just have way too many people uh, going to collect social security and Medicare. Uh, so the debt's going to keep on growing and growing and growing. Um, but the one thing is that the United States of America is like, again, the biggest economy, biggest military, everything. So we don't have to worry about a debt blow up. I always tell people this, when Japan has a debt blow up, when the Euro has a debt blow up, when China has a debt blow up or any of these other countries, when their debt starts blowing up on them or, I always say if Greece, like the 10 year yield in America is higher than Greece right now, you know? Uh, so if those countries start blowing up and their debt blows up, then we can talk about the U S but the U S right now is just, it's King Godzilla, right? So the bond market will always give it, uh, uh, it, it it's due and the appetite for us, our bonds, like if the fed wanted to, they could just go, okay, we're done with QT. We're going to start buying treasuries. Again, the 10 year yield would, be at three and a quarter within yeah, three yeah. weeks. They can do that if they wanted to. The Bank of Japan has been doing that for a long time. So it's a confusing topic because for so many, so many decades, people say America's broke, America's broke. We're like a $195 trillion economy out <laughs> here. Like, you know, uh, uh, we are the wealthiest country in the world. Other countries that have to have debt blowups first, but there's nothing stopping this trade. Uh, and uh, still today, you know, the growth rate of inflation is falling. And it's we our our debt's not going to get treated like other countries. I mean, this is why the euro was created, because those countries did not want to go against the dollar on their own, so they created the euro as a whole. Mm, um, yeah. uh, so it's 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 always a confusing topic, but I always say that we're king dollar, king economy for a reason. So our debt's going to grow. Mandatory payouts are going to be extreme for the next uh, uh, seven or eight decades. Uh, and then eventually the population boom that we had last century, so many people are going to start dying around the world and the demographic things are just going to change. Like everyone's going to become Japan at some point, mm -hmm. uh, but Japan's population is going to be dead 40% of it by the end of this century. Uh, so their debt to GDP is so much higher, but they're borrowing at you know much lower rates than us. So 
Uh, I wouldn't worry about the debt in that sense, but definitely um, the politics around debt is actually more interesting if they actually try to balance or do something like that or raise taxes. But uh, in that article, I kind of highlight all these things people talk about. Nothing ever gets done because (laughs) they keep raising the debt ceiling and it just doesn't nothing ever ends. They're just yeah, no, it's not. Yeah, I mean. If, if the bond market is the only people that could actually regulate the, the, the government spending and the 10 year yield is, you know, considering where inflation and growth is, it's actually pretty normal. Uh, um, and if you look at the history, like if I took a bond chart for 800 years, it's been in a downtrend, right? It's very, the, the 70s were very uh, abnormal, but we had labor force growth, the baby boomers were coming in. Um, oil adjusting to inflation today would have to be $450 for the oil prices back then. Uh, so we had a lot of different things back then, but if you take the seventies out of it, the ten-year yields kind of like five, three, you know, percent has been normal, you know, going back to seventeen ninety. So uh, um, you get some you, bond market uh, rifts here or there, but yeah, the debt's going to keep on growing, and nobody's ever going to do anything about it because that's that's the political thing. Nobody's going to cut Social Security because you're well, all the people that we have now, the baby boomers, nobody's going to do it to them and Medicare and nobody's going to cut defensive spending and raising taxes in this country. That's never going to happen either. Uh, California, they've been kind of raising taxes over here, but California, (laughs) California, that's, that's a whole different, California is a whole different subject. It's a whole different subject. Um, So you don't think the feds lost control by any means or anything? I mean, what would take, take I, I think the federal reserve is probably a little bit happy that, bond yields have gone up so it could stay restrictive so they don't have to hike anymore but i th- I think this last move has made them a little bit uh, uh literally again if the fed wanted to two sentences we're done hiking we're stopping qt and we want to support the bond market everything changes yeah you know if yeah. they wanted it if they wanted to have like a soft landing for sure they would say that now so they're 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 kind of afraid of the 1970s inflation which is funny to me because this is just straight out of global pandemics history. So they kind of said, we can never have inflation go down or the growth rate fall unless the labor market supply. Well, guess what? We have 5% growth GDP this this quarter and the jobless claims is under 200,000 and the growth rate of inflation has been falling for some time. So there's there's a history of global pandemics, you know, especially 1918 to, to 1920, where you see these major inflationary periods and then the disinflation period. So here it's it's a, it's gone a little bit faster. And now all the rental supply is coming to hit the markets and mm-hmm. 44% of CPI inflation is shelter inflation. 25% of that is rent. So, so that'll bring it down pretty rapidly, right? I mean, yes. when with all this, the rental market kind of softening there, you know, that that's what I'm seeing, you know, as a, as a, as a landlord, I'm seeing it per, you know firsthand. So I imagine that's going to really... Once those once that data hits, it's going to really sort of bring that inflation down. I'm yeah, I mean, and and they kind of know this to a degree, you know. They but it's just the 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 Fed is worried about their reputation, and they literally told everyone we're going into a recession this year, and uh, that that's the only way to bring down inflation. So they kind of put their heads down, and all of a sudden they're like, "Oh wow, the labor market is resilient. Everything is resilient, resilient." Well, guess what? Everyone has 30 year fixed mortgages, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Raise the rates all you want, <laughs> you know, the, the fixed debt costs. And, you know, what that's one of the parts of the presentations I give when I, when I tour the country is I, I show people the credit debt profiles in America. I said, guys, look at how beautiful this chart is. This is like one of the sexiest charts I've ever seen. And I just get so happy. Other countries would die to have this. And it's, it's just a simple, a simple thing is that 
you know, our debt costs uh, as a percentage of our income is is so low because everyone's got 30 year fixes and majority of all consumer debt is mortgage debt. And uh, uh, we put everybody in a really good spot the last 12 years. And when COVID happened and then inflation happened, a lot of American families were shielded uh, where other countries don't have that luxury. Well, that 30-year fix is the gift that keeps on giving, and it's also been the death of the loan originator because they got all their clients into these amazing loans, and now the clients are like, I'm good. I'm good. It's one of those things where we haven't dealt with breakaway inflation for so long. So every single housing cycle since 1981 is at 2% plus lower rates to help you know demand and refinances. And for that to happen again, we'd have to have mortgage rates get down to half a percent because, you know, we got to like 2.75 or two and a half. Um, but what's occurred right now is that rates have gone up so much and we it's gone up with duration that next time when rates do fall, uh, not only do you get a little bit of the purchase boost, but you're going to have a, a supply of, you know, four to eight million uh, homeowners that do actually have higher rates. It's not going to be like it was in the past where we, we worked off of a channel of three and a quarter to 5% mortgage rates, but uh, um, we're, we're, we're creating more supply of homeowners that could refinance every single month with rates this high. And True. unless True. we never have a recession ever again, uh, um, eventually rates do fall. Uh, that's how it's worked for every cycle. We're, we're not seeing breakaway inflation. The Fed is being way too overaggressive now for no yeah. reason. And uh uh, uh, things will turn around in that sense. We just need to see the labor market soften up a bit. So what do you think that it'll take the Fed to say those three sentences that you said earlier? Like My Fed, because uh, I've not been a Fed pivot person this entire time. I said, until jobless claims break over 323,000 on the four-week moving average, and I won't bore you with my models on labor markets about that number, but that number breaks the labor market. The bond market would get ahead of the Fed and the Fed would have to play catch. I always say the Fed is old and slow. That's what they're known for. And they will be old and slow again. And they're doing it again. They're they're just like, like there was no reason for them to be so hawkish in the last Fed meeting. I was like, what are you guys doing? You know, at this point, now you're going to be hawkish on the Fed. So, right, right. Um, oh, it was so annoying. You know, they, they, yeah. they could have yeah. just taken the victory and just let it, but they can't. And uh, I have I've had a sense of this going all the way back to last year that they really if they're doing 1970 model economics, boy, they really want a, a job loss recession because that's how you defeat inflation. Um, and they kind of they whiffed on that. And the growth rate of inflation has already kind of fallen down on the labor market's tight. And they still didn't learn their lesson because <laughs> they still were hawkish. But three hundred twenty three thousand on the four week moving average jobless claims are around uh, two hundred thousand. The bond market will get ahead of the Fed. And then after that, that that to me is when the Fed starts changing their language and everything. But in that case, they're going to be old and slow again behind the curve. Uh, and that's the history uh, 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 of Fed. I mean, this is an institution that meets every like six weeks. So they're not like on the spot unless you have some crazy event like COVID where they just do emergency uh, right. rate cuts or something to that nature. Well, you made me feel better. Got a lot, a lot of positive stuff. <laughs> Um, what do you think the biggest challenge of the, in the U.S. is right now? Well, Space. number one, um, productivity sucks. And it, it's just, it's just it, if we had productivity growth, that, that would be the Fed's like fantasy dream. Um, and, you know, they always talk about they want wage growth to be kind of around 
three to three and a half percent with, you know, inflation being down there, be fine with that. But if we could get any kind of productivity growth, like, like one of the things that is really hurtful on housing, we literally still built homes like we built homes 50 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Like we have hammers and nails and everything, you know, and I know there's 3D printing and everything, but construction productivity is the worst, you know? Uh, so if we can get productivity growth in the US, it really would help us. And also, you know, our advantage still is that the millennials and, and Gen Z uh, combined are bigger than the population of, of Japan. But there's parts of the U.S. that doesn't have a lot of prime age labor force growth. They don't have a lot of young people. So those areas are getting uh, a hit. Like one of the things I talked about early in the COVID-19 recovery, I was like, job openings are going to get to 10 million. And it was like, there's no way. And we just had a big miss on the jobs report. And I was like, I was like, no, I'm doubling and tripling down. I couldn't even get the BLS people I knew that no oh, job openings are going to get 10 million really soon because job openings have been slowly rising for a long time. Remember, the baby boomers are leaving the workforce. They have to be replaced. And then if demand grows, you need more labor. There's parts of the area that just lack young workers. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And it just gets harder and harder for uh, people to find work. And then, you know, you have to pay up more. Uh, there's where productivity could help. So the lack of population growth in some areas and the lack of productivity growth to me are are kind of a concern and also housing inflation uh um you know the housing crash like other countries are so much more expensive than us like canada uh even france the uk sweden australia new zealand their home prices accelerated so much more than ours because we had the housing bubble crash we had a credit boom and credit bust so we're just kind of catching up to uh, a lot of countries but we're so far away from them so it's, the housing inflation could be more sticky than people think. Uh, uh, and that's a very difficult problem to solve because you got productivity and more affordable housing, you can make life easier for, for people. So housing inflation, productivity, and the lack of population growth in certain areas of the U.S. to me are, are more of a concern. The rest uh, are, are in good spot compared to other countries. Interesting. So... Um... Advice for mortgage brokers. I mean, a lot of mortgage brokers are just hanging on, right? They're just got their one or two deals here and there. You know, things were so easy, money was flowing, and now it's like, you know, they're just looking in the bottom drawer for that one borrower that, you know, has got all the warts on it. And and so, I mean, what are your advice for mortgage brokers that are just hanging in there and just trying to trying to make it through this rate situation? It's a very difficult time because the the capacity of the mortgage industry really grew uh, uh, and the technologies and the ability for, for competition uh, uh, grew. You, you always have to run your finances thinking about a kind of a boom and bust cycle. Uh, um, and uh, Beast or famine. Yeah, always the advice is that you, you, ha- you have to realize you're in an industry that you can lose 50 to 75% of your income in one year. And it has nothing to do with, you know, you being a good loan officer or not. Uh, uh, it is the ability of rates, what we call the kill rates for refinances. And then if rates go up, the purchase market goes down. So the thing about now is, boy, this is the kind of the bottom uh, you, you could imagine. I mean, home sales historically after 1996 don't really trend under 4 million. We're kind of just a little bit under there right now. And of course, the refinance market is Dead in the sense you you do get some people that do cash out because you know their total payments would be less even with a higher mortgage rate, um, but we are kind of at the tr- bottom trough of where demand can be. So 
Uh, you yourself have to know your finances and realize that at some point in the future, there is going to be uh, more business, but always remember that you're in a sector that could go like this higher, go like this lower. True, uh, true. Uh, and always kind of plan for that either way going in the future, because uh, uh, I think uh, the the, the inexperienced loan officers who just think that's they I'll always have this much amount of business have not seen these rate cycles and what they can do. And uh, the industry just has so much more competition now, uh, especially when some of these companies went public. You know, you know, you really they, they, the, the bottom line matters more than than, than if they weren't public. So it's, it's just been a brutal, just a brutal deep recession in the real estate industry, especially in the mortgage and I think we have 345,000 loan officers, you know, uh, uh, in the country. Uh, that number is probably a little bit inflated right now. So it's it, it's tough out there. The only thing I could say is that we're historically at very low levels of sales. We've had the biggest mortgage rate spike in recent history. So a lot of that bad news is kind of in. Uh, um, and I just the labor market softening enough a bit. Things should be better next year. I didn't think this year was going to be the year. I wouldn't have brought the Gandalf line out if I thought that would be the case. But <laughs> next year should be a little bit better on the rate side. And since you're working from such low levels, you'll see an uptick in business in that sense. That's good. Yeah. I think they're feeling it. And I think if they can hold on and find deals, do non-QM, do second mortgages like we talked about earlier, uh, they could potentially keep themselves low. But it's always good to have that savings and that nest egg and you know, yeah. no, no, uh, hold on for a brighter future, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a feast or famine uh, industry. So, uh, we've seen a few cycles here and there. Uh, any shout outs that, uh, people have helped you along the way get where you are? Well, number one, always to my high school basketball coach, Coach Keith, who taught me that you, know, <laughs> uh, you have to class intensity and teamwork. And that's kind of how I, I was actually going to be a history teacher and coach high school basketball. That was my whole game wow. plan in the 1990s. Um, and uh, uh, he taught me that how you conduct yourself is how everyone's going to look at you around the world. And if you have a bigger stage, that means you have more responsibility. Uh, uh, so I always give a shout out to him because I've used that principle, you know, especially in my writing and economics work. And that's why I love going out touring and trying to explain to people like a high school basketball coach. I mean, I'm basically like out there, like, you know, drawing plays. That's kind of how cool. I look at my charts. And, and that foundation is always rooted in everything I try to do out there and always making sure every single presentation, every single podcast, the intensity is always there. Uh, so you have to think about it. every effort has to be the same and you have to give it your best. That's awesome. So uh, we're lots of amazing information. I appreciate you sharing. Where does someone find you online? They want to follow you? So we have a few avenues. Number one, Housing Wire. Uh, uh, if you go to the website, the, uh, uh, the all my articles are Housing Wire Plus. Uh, if you wanted to use the Logan VIP 20, that gives you the code to get access. We have a weekly tracker article that gives everyone the live inventory, new listings data, 10-year yield channels, mortgage purchase apps. We, do, we try to teach people the economics of housing on a weekly basis, because if you wait for the sales data, you're like two, three months behind. Right. Um, that's where my information work is. We actually do have a top 10 Apple business podcast, Housing Wire uh, uh, Daily. Uh, Sarah Wheeler and myself, we come on Thursdays and Mondays. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and we talk about everything that goes around in, in, in the world, not just for real estate, but for the uh, economics. And if you really want to nerd out, you follow my Instagram. And my Instagram stories are not 
fun partying or anything. They're literally just economic charts and going over uh, bond markets and real estate information. But you keep it fun. You, you keep it light and fun. Yeah. And then on Twitter, if you really want to see me go after the housing bubble boys and uh, crazy stock traders, uh, Twitter, there's a lot of information there. So Twitter, Instagram, Housing Wire, and Housing Wire Daily, the podcast, those, those are the best avenues to follow me. And we will post a link to some of your stuff too on the, when we post the podcast. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Awesome. Thanks for watching, everyone. Please like, share, subscribe, and make sure you comment below and let us know uh, any guests you'd like to have on. Thanks for watching. The Million Dollar Mortgage Experience Podcast.